Good morning. Welcome to those of you who came in person and to those of you who are watching uh, via live stream. Thank you for being here. Um, I want to thank those people back there who make this possible. I want to remind you, please, to uh, turn off your cell phones. Make sure that they are in the off position. And um, we're going to begin in silence, as we usually do, just to get all of who we are here. And um, I don't know where to put this particular piece of information. Most of you know it, but... Um, <clears throat> Jeannie and Jerry Martin's son, Jeannie Martin, you remember who stands and gives us updates about the Afghan family relocation process. Their son was murdered last weekend and the body was found on Friday. And so um, it's been a terrible ordeal for them. And um, their son was 27, his name is Jimmy, he lived in Oregon, he has a seven-year-old son, his name is Jade. Um, there will be a memorial service for Jimmy, uh, who had, as I understand it, I never met him, but Matt Russell um, knew Jimmy, and Matt and I are going to do the service together sometime in March, I think the first Saturday in March. Don't hold me to that, I'll, I'll put it out when the word is out there, but you want to remember... Um, Jeannie and, and uh, Jerry, their daughter's name is Julie. The grandson's name I said is Jade, or did I say that? And Jade had requested that at the funeral, since his dad had just bought him really crazy looking shoes, that we all wear crazy looking shoes to the funeral. So, <laughs> I'm thinking that over. You have some. Um, yeah. Jeannie, Jeannie said you could wear your light-up <laughs> shoes. I, I don't think so. Um, but anyway, rem remember them and, and all people out there who are carrying, uh, and, and many of you in here who are carrying hurts and sorrows that we don't know anything about. So um, the Celtic prayer that I adopt and um, recommend every Sunday to you is this. Grace be in our heads and in our thinking. Grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. Grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. Grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And grace be at our ends and at our departing. So my hope is that you find what you're looking for today here. I'm glad you're here. And I'm glad that Holly's here with me. And in this time, we honor those eternal truths of uh, realities of love and honesty, truth, and freedom. And with the, do this with the belief that what we do here benefits all people everywhere. No matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. By the way, I do want to keep reminding you because this event that we are co-sponsoring with Beth Sheeran is off our campus, it's not something that you would be wired to attend or familiar with. So uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to keep reminding you in word and print that on uh, March the 2nd, we have this event that we are co-sponsoring with the Beth Sheeran Temple Synagogue. 
um, with uh, Susanna Heschel. Somebody asked me the other day, I don't know about her. Well, you can probably find something of her on YouTube. But if you go to, speaking of faith, Krista Tippett's program and do a search for Abraham Joshua Heschel, you will hear Krista Tippett interview him uh, from a number of years ago. He was a very active man in uh, civil rights. He was a Jewish rabbi, philosopher, historian, scholar, author of numerous books. And his daughter, Susanna, has inherited that kind of lineage. Uh, she teaches, I believe, at Dartmouth. Is that correct? And and um, what I have heard and know of her is this is going to be a great evening. And so put it on your calendar and be sure that that you attend. So I need new glasses. <laughs> Maybe your glasses need new eyeballs. My grandmother lived to be into her nineties, and she never used glasses ever drink right out of the bottle. Anyway, <laughs> I didn't have that written down in my notes. Wow. So. Only here on Sundays, huh? <laughs> so what these teachings are about currently are not how to be spiritual or how to be religious. They're about how to walk the path of being and becoming fully human and about becoming and being aware and open and honest uh, to our true selves. Um, I do offer what I hope is useful spiritual and religious information and, and knowledge uh, to enlighten the path. And the religious teachings that I use are primarily from Jesus, although next week we will begin with a wonderful, wonderful story from the, uh, from the gospel from Genesis, one of the greatest stories in the Hebrew scripture. It doesn't get a lot of press, but that's where I want to begin <laughs> last week. Um, and then at some point in the not too distant future, I want to give you kind of an update about what's going on in the current scholarship, about Jesus scholarship, biblical scholarship that um, kind of post dates or it comes after work that's been done in the Jesus seminar. Uh, so there's been a lot of stuff happening in the field, and it doesn't get any press because it's not very popular to read about in the front page news, and it certainly doesn't get brought up mo in, in, in most churches. So those of you who are regular attendees here know that you hear things in ordinary life that you don't hear in other Sunday school classes. Um, now, this is good. There, there is a tragic ignorance among the general public about religious and spiritual matters. And ironically, this uh, ignorance seems to be even worse against people who are vocally religious. So most people, when they go to consult a medical expert about something, they want their doctor to be knowledgeable, trained, and have the very latest medical information and techniques available. However, when it comes to religion and religious information, many people are willing to live in the last century. <laughs> so it's good that you hear things here that you likely don't hear other places. By the way, this is not a self-improvement class because you're already just fine. Um, it does take courage to take that in 
and and um, some of what you hear, including that just last sentence, is hard to hear. But further, what you hear today, I mean, what you hear most every Sunday is my stuff, and today it's going to be my stuff and Holly's stuff. And uh, Holly Hudley is probably the most knowledgeable, up-to-date person in evolutionary cosmology and a lot of things that are relevant to what we talk about in here. Maybe just between the two of us, I am not the most knowledgeable I did, on. I'm be the operator <laughs> of that. Okay. Today. I mean, she, she just submitted her PhD dissertation and has applied and gotten accepted for a spiritual direction. Um, so, this is good stuff. This is good. So, I know because we talk, and, and um, I'm grateful that I have the kind of job that allows me to have the time to read as much as I get to read. I read books and recommend books occasionally. <laughs> and I'm so grateful for that. So, this is our stuff, okay? And it's at the, I hope it's good and up to date and... Um, but it's also bad because I could be full of it. And sadly, so could Holly. So don't trust anything don't we say. Don't tell my kids that. Go, if, if there's something that you go, oh, go check it out. Mm -hmm. there, you know, fortunately, we live in a time where you can access data by just going to your computer, putting into your search engine, into Google or whatever it is, and you can find the up-to-date information and, and check it out for yourself. Make sure, investigate for yourself and what you find uh, to be true and what you find to be useful then becomes your wisdom. It's not something that you just got. It's something, oh, that you discover through yourself. So anyway, so far in this mini-series, I have focused on awareness and what awareness brings us. And I've said that awareness is the beginning of the journey into wholeness. And I've offered some stories from a variety of traditions. I offered some practices <clears throat> that I'm sure every single one of you now does every single day. <laughs> three times. Be huh? Three times. Because we gave an exam, remember? Look, you don't have to wait for the exam that happens in here. Life is going to give you one. It just, it just helps to be prepared for it uh, when it comes. <clears throat> and then we talked about how awareness brings with it a number of companions. And what I meant for that particular uh, class to focus on was how awareness brings us this incredible sense of, wow this wonder when you open up to what is. But also when you open up to what is, you open up to things like tragedies and murders and illness and all that sort of thing. So we did do a little bit of a sidebar on that. But the biggest thing that awareness brings us is wonder. And, and um, that's, that's a great thing. And so today we're going to take another step in dealing with what awareness brings us, and that has to do with learning to distinguish between what is present in our awareness and our perceptions of that. 
Now, I'm going to say that again because that is the most important sentence, I think, maybe in today's whole class. And it's what the rest of what you're going to hear Holly and me talk about today. My ability to distinguish between your presence and my perceptions has the power to change the world. Comprende? My ability to distinguish between you as who you are and not my projections onto you my ability to distinguish between your, your presence and my perception has the ability to change this world. And that's what this time is about. And I hope you remember that we talked last week about how the place that you're going to find all this is in ordinary life, not some special place or opportunity. And uh, so today we got the opportunity to see about otherness. I, I was um, doing a counseling session with someone uh, a long time ago. I thought I took that slide out. Sorry. So we'll skip it. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> that next one, I mean. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was doing a counseling session with a couple, and the guy said, you know, I think the trouble in my marriage is that up to this point, I've seen my wife as a bit player in the movie of my life. <laughs> All the women in here. <laughs> well, wait, wait. I bet a lot of us think that about other people. Mm -hmm. That the story out there is about me, and you're just bit players in the story, right? And so what we hope to accomplish today is that we learn to see the other. And um, that others are not like us is both a threat, and it's something to be curious about. And the threat is that being open to other people is learning to see that uh, our way of challenge, way of seeing things is challenge. When I learned to, wow, how did you learn that or adopt that point of view instead of, you idiot. Mm. Mm. That never happened. You can just skip that. Yeah. That's next Sunday. So Don't let them look at it too closely. Okay, hurry. All right. <laughs> Oh, uh, it's oops, too fast. No, it went too fast. Right, there you go. Uh, a couple of things sprung to mind as we were talking through this time today, and they're both quotes that I'll read. Um, one is by David Abram, and he has a book called Spell of the Sensuous. That's a beautiful book. But he writes, Our bodies have formed themselves in delicate reciprocity with the manifold textures, sounds, and shapes of an animate earth. Our eyes have evolved in subtle interaction with other, other eyes, as our ears are attuned by their very structure to the howling of wolves and the honking of geese. To shut ourselves off from these voices, to continue by our lifestyles, to condemn these other sensibilities to the oblivion of extinction, is to rob our own senses of their integrity and to rob our minds of their coherence. We are human only in contact and conviviality with what is not human. Yeah, he's a beautiful writer. And the second thing that sprung to mind, and I'll explain a little bit more why throughout this talk, is Thich Nhat Hanh's beautiful prayer in which before eating, before anything, he says, in this food, 
I see clearly the presence of the entire universe supporting my existence. So both of these are about the interconnectedness that we share, not just with each other, but with all of the beings and all of the animate and inanimate objects in our life. These quotes for me connect us to our cosmic origins. They remind us that we are, uh, what Thomas Berry said, a mode of the universe getting to know itself as human. And also that we form, as David Abrams says, indelicate reciprocity to it. I think for many of us, it's pretty, I don't know if it's easy, but it is non-threatening in many ways to feel connected to our wholeness, our solace, a sense of peace in nature. Nature doesn't tend to talk back to us. It doesn't tend to judge us. It doesn't tend to, what well, I mean talk back, I mean like uh, press against you like a child might. <laughs> um, it, 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 it moves through us. We experience nature when we're in it. And we try to express what we experience through art, poetry, music. We try to talk about it. Uh, in December, I had an opportunity to go swimming with a whale shark. Yeah, I'll just let that play. Um, I was kayaking in the Sea of Cortez with a group of women with one of my best friends in the world. And we played with sea lions, snorkeling with tor tortoises, turtles, sorry. And the highlight for me was this, snorkeling with this guy who's about, he's a juvenile. And we know it's a he because the he's come together. No one has ever seen a live birth of a, of a whale shark, ever. So the, the, I have this like fantasy that the mama sharks are over somewhere else in some female colony and they send all the boys over to go eat in the Sea of Cortez. Anyway, um, he was 25 feet long as a juvenile. So he, he may get twice that size, three times that size. Were you scared? No, not at all. Yeah, I was amazed. Um, he didn't need me to validate his existence, but I felt like in that very small snatch of time, I was part of his ecosystem. There are remora fish hanging on to him, eating, they, it's, recipro it's reciprocity. They hang on to his body and eat the algae and the parasites to fuel them. And schools of fish swim underneath him to protect themselves. So he's this giant protector. It's like a floating sofa in the ocean, honestly. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, they, and they're beautiful just because they can be beautiful. They don't need spots. Nothing is hunting this guy. But they're this beautiful, elegant creature that are baleen feeders, so they have a filter, they're, they're filter feeders, which is why they're not dangerous. So even through their giantness, they're completely unthreatening. This um, experience for me was mystical. It was full of wonder and awe, and I think I could have swum with him, swam, swum, swam, swum? I could have gone been on. In, been in the water with. I could have been in the water with that guy yeah. forever. Uh, and then all of a sudden, it's like they're, literally, the group was like, Holly, we got to go. We got to go. And I was like, oh, yeah, I have children. I have to eventually get back. But, um, <laughs> but we don't touch him. Touch is prohibited because these, they're very well protected by the National Park at, in, in, in Mexico. But to just have been in his orbit for a minute was awesome. No harm done to me. No harm done to him. Nothing projected onto me. Nothing projected onto him just an experience. It's harder to do this with humans. We so often, we wish each other harm, and we do harm to one another, and we project our unmet needs onto each other all the time. 
What would it be like, I wonder, to just encounter each other as we are, without the filter of need or want or hurt? I can't remember, honestly, the last time I had just an encounter like that with a human being where I wasn't being in my counterphobic sick self. Um, maybe it was when my kids were babies and they were sleeping. <laughs> I don't know, but just, you know, they weren't talking. They, so I just got to encounter them. But as soon as we learn talk or communication, we begin to project onto one another. The hope here is to talk through how to deepen our awareness through spiritual practice, sometimes daily, uh, and deepen our awareness. Sometimes. Yeah, just sometimes. As, as often as you can. <laughs> just giving the folks a break here. As I said, she could be full of it, you know? <laughs> it's every day. Yeah, but the hope is that as we deepen our spiritual practice, as we deepen self-awareness, we also deepen other awareness. I think how not to project onto one another is a whole other talk and probably years of psychotherapy, so that's not what we're doing today. But it's just to talk about or stress the point that we're not separate, that the personal awakening that comes through spiritual practice also leads to deeper social awareness. So, as you <clears throat> have likely heard me say, I was born and spent the first two decades of my life in Tennessee. I was born in Middle Tennessee, right around Nashville. In my growing up, people were still fighting the Civil War. Confederate flags were everywhere. Um, it was a popular thing for even adult men to wear Confederate uniforms and hats. Um, there were plenty of places uh, when I was growing up where the colored only signs were very prevalent and over water fountains and in a variety of other places. It's strictly segregated. The colored people lived in one part of town and it was called Colored Town. White people lived in someplace else. If you've ever seen the movie The Help or read that book, uh, that takes place in Jackson, Mississippi, but it could have taken place, huh? Is my second? Okay. It, it, it could have taken place. <laughs> Nothing. You keep going. He just okay. coughed. <laughs> it, it, it could have taken place in Columbia, Tennessee, where I grew up, because that was my mother had help. And. Um, I've mentioned before that my father was an intense racist and he had a black woman living in his house when I was born charged with taking care of his kids. So that kind of cognitive dissonance, just, just crazy making in that. I grew up also in Tennessee around a lot of Native American people um, in the uh, east of Tennessee, uh, the Cherokee Indians. In uh, Middle Tennessee, there are Chickasaw Indians, and in Western Tennessee, there are Choctaw. As a matter of fact, I think Choctaw, although I, I, I tried to check on this, I thought Cherokee too. I think Choctaw is the only place that still has a federally sanctioned Indian reservation on Tennessee land, is in West Tennessee, Choctaw Indians. Um, so in this intensive racist culture, and one where Native Americans really were viewed like tourist attractions. Mm -hmm. You would go see the Cherokees in East Tennessee in the Smoky Mountains. 
people who had been disfranchised, disenfranchised of their land, people who were blocked from voting. Um, that's the culture I was raised in. And no matter how much I might wish that it had been otherwise, my personal history is entangled in that. And our nation's history is entangled with that. Entangled with racism and, and white supremacy. Now, one of the challenges facing us as a nation, and it seems to be growing in intensity when you look at the news, is whether we can develop the maturity to look back at our collective history and forward to see what works best for everybody. And if you remember when um, Dr. Stephen Kleinberg was here, he talked about the changing demographic of our city and our state and our country and that changing demographic is a reality that is happening. It is not going to go away. It is not going to change. And we got to figure out ways to live with that in ways that are wise and skillful. Now, I think whether we can do that or not is really a spiritual issue. So I keep saying uh, there are three things that we need to honor in this place. Love, honesty, and freedom. Doesn't matter what religion you embrace or refuse to embrace, you can work on those three things. We can do what we need to do to come to terms. We cannot do what we need to do to come to terms with the truth if we don't face it. So sometime last year, somebody gave me this book. And you've likely heard of it. Uh, it's received a fair amount of press lately, much of it distorted. And I read through this book and I concluded, yes, this is true. It's, I, didn't, I don't think, I don't mean this arrogantly, that in the 1619 Project I really learned anything I had not already learned after reading especially the spade of books that came out after George Floyd's murder. Um, this is part of the 1619 Project is named 1619 because 1619 is the year in which the first slaves were brought to the American colonies. And uh, it's part of our history. You can't deny that. And just not a great part of our history, but it's part of our history. But I put the book, book aside and... Um, then when critics started criticizing the book, I wondered, have you read it? And just like when people start raising the, and it's coming up now in all the state legislatures, in Texas, in Florida, in Arizona, in other places, criticism about critical race theory, and I want to say, okay, define it for me. What is it to you? And I don't know that this is true, but I would be willing to bet that a lot of people who are very critical of critical race theory can't tell you what it is. So if we're going to have a discussion about it and take opposite sides, let's all agree on what the terms are. Now, I think because you are all smart, well-read, educated people, you know what's in this book. 
So uh, recently, Sherry and I started watching the four-part documentary that is on this book that is on Hulu. And uh, uh, the fourth episode is not dropped yet, but the first three have. And although intellectually I knew the content of this book, the images that come in the documentary, you watch it, the dialogue have given me an, an experiential insight into the book I would never, ever, ever have had. The third episode is all about music. And, and how much of American music owes itself to the roots of what the African-American people brought to and then took and molded themselves in this culture. And we're unaware of that for the most part. I knew, but I'd forgotten where the term Jim Crow came from. You know where Jim Crow comes from. Jim Crow was a vaudeville person who put on blackface and sang a song about Jim Crow. So that's where that name come from. Now you know the, uh, the story of America is great, it's grand, it's a story of freedoms, it's a story of rights, it's a story of opportunities, and it's a story of slavery, it's a story of broken treaties, it's a story of stolen lands, it's a story of the other time and time and time again. And to hide from this truth is to hide from the God of all who are and the God of all that is. It's that simple. And it is that complicated. So we all have lived and are now living in a culture where people and their abilities have been overlooked or diminished because of their race, religion, or sexual orientation. This is a current fight in the Methodist Church, and we know it's wrong. In our hearts, we know it's wrong. Now, it should not be controversial to say any of what I have just said anywhere, but it is. I could not have just said the preceding six paragraphs in the Texas State Legislature. Or in many churches. Why is that? What is it that, what is true and we're going to talk about that phrase next week. Why is it that what is true so often has such a difficult time getting a fair hearing in public places? The prophets of Israel and the teaching of Jesus clearly teach that an honest, loving look at what is that's the first Sunday's lesson in this series on awareness in a sentence. An honest, loving look at what is, is what sets us free. Hmm. When I say a bit about the use of the word other, usually it's implied to mean different, and when often it's used to imply that difference is bad 
And we are, as Bill said, shaped by a culture of white supremacy. So other, being othered is you are not me. Therefore, you are not better or equal to me. A word that dripped with otherness in my growing up was interesting. He's so interesting. Or she's wearing something interesting. You know, it's so interesting had a, it was dripping with judgment. To be othered is to be treated as though you are not part of a group or made to feel usually bad because of your difference. I'm guessing that individually, each of us might have felt that in social situations, not belonging to a group, being cast out. And we can relate to that feeling of being othered at some point. In our society, though, whole groups of people have been othered, cast out, left aside, not considered in the making of laws. There's a wall going up right now, still going up, between Texas and Mexico to keep the others out. By the way, it's also wreaking havoc on the natural world. There are animals that don't know the difference between Texas and Mexico, and they cannot get to feeding grounds. They cannot migrate in their usual patterns. So Bill and I both love, have an affinity for Jim Finley. You actually know him. I don't, but I feel like I do because of the way his spirit comes through in his speaking, or if you've ever listened to him read a book. Uh, he has this beautiful line in which he says, I am not you. I am not other than you either. I am not God. I am not <clears throat> other than God either. This is a mystical idea. It's a non-dual mind. It recalls Meister Eckhart saying in the 13th century, the eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me. There's another guy who sounded a bit like that. What's his name? What do you call him? Maybe it's him. He said something about I and the Father are one. By the way, the hula hoop? <laughs> That's awesome. Is this a photograph? Yeah, it's, um, I believe, taken live when he ascended into heaven. Okay. Yeah. Um, Jesus' movement was all about including those we have othered. So I want to try and offer a different way to think about the other. By the way, when I Googled a picture of Jesus laughing, because <laughs> I just thought that's appropriate you know, for talking about how much Jesus loves, uh, it was an experience all by itself, because all that would come up were these wavy-haired, blue-eyed, white Jesuses laughing, but this one of Jesus in a hula hoop stole my heart. So I love the idea of God as a hula hoop. Anyhow, um, my new classic picture of Jesus, I think. In her book, <laughs> Touch of Transcendence, Mayra Rivera writes, what would divine transcendence look like if we revised our conceptions of difference? What if we no longer assumed that difference entails separation? What if transcendence were not understood as that which radically distances God from creatures, but rather as a theological concept that makes difference significant, especially our differences from one another? She offers that transcendence is not something out there. We've heard that before. God is not out there. Transcendence happens right here. It happens between us. So each of us is wholly other in a sense because each of us uniquely represents something about the divine unfolding. We are all, she concludes, transcendent others. So each of us is an other, <clears throat> separate and also not separate from every other other. Follow? 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. How can we imagine using her wisdom in our spiritual practice? I wonder if it's to picture the face of the other who we consider different from us and to ask how are we working on behalf of our shared liberation? The hope is that in the internal gaze, we begin to take kind of an outward stance. So how am I being begins to help us look outward. It's not simply charity. It's not doing something on behalf of someone who has been othered, but seeing that we are bound up. That my doing something for your liberation is also doing something for my liberation. So often we mistake, charity has a power dynamic, right? Someone at the top of the social ladder is giving to someone at the, uh, the, at a lower rung of the social ladder. But how do we see that we are connected? The idea is that the, in the collective white imagination that we're somehow separate individuals has made us spiritually anemic. It is, again, in reality, as David Abrams said, we are formed in reciprocity with one another. So when we talk about doing spiritual work and we're using integral theory as a kind of a paradigm, integral theory is a desire to put everything together based on the works of Ken Wilber. Um, you know, he talks about their lines and there are uh, stages and there are developmental processes. So you, you have a line, spiritual work is a line that you go from one place to another. Spiritual work is a progress where you go from one lower state to another. Um, um, Karen Armstrong in her autobiography calls it a staircase, the spiral staircase. And in Ken Wilber's work, he talks about spiral dynamics and how we move from one level to another. So it, it, it is all of that. We travel those paths simultaneously. So awareness starts within ourselves. Um, I've done this work now for a long time, over 50 years. And um, I can tell you that the vast majority of people I have sat with, including myself, um, when we come clean, we all carry some version of, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. Uh, It's something that we have some low humming level of guilt or shame or as many people will say, if you really knew me, you would like me. And um, the genius of the saints in spiritual work is that they see through that bull crap. Uh. <laughs> they just go right through I it. I dare you. <laughs> and it's one of the reasons that if you've ever known a really holy person like Jim Finley, whom I consider a really holy person, it's not when you are in Jim Finley's presence, it's not what you think about him. Oh, my God, what a wonderful guy. It's how you feel about yourself in his presence. Get it? Mm-hmm. And that's how Jesus was with people. Um, I think that that's one of the, I love Jesus for this, this reason alone, is that he does not allow what we think defines us to define us. He lived in this social system, which again, we're going to talk more about next, next week, but he lived in this social system where there were a hundred, hundreds of ways that you could be pronounced by the legal and religious establishment as being not okay, as being unclean, as being outside. And Jesus said, eh, I don't see that. 
I will not let your blindness, your lameness, your haltness, whatever it is, define you. I see you as the whole person you already are. Now go to the church and tell them that. <laughs> and you don't have to pay anything for it. <clears throat> I'm offering free health care. <laughs> You see any parallels between that and now? Where we live in a social system that keeps saying to some people, you're not okay, you can't fit, you don't belong because of your race, your sex, your sexual orientation, whatever it is, we who have the power to make the rules say, mm-mm. And those who come along and say, that's not right, frequently get in trouble with the establishment. Now, <clears throat> I'm, I'm still working to get uh, Susan Stabil here. I've just started reading a new book on Buddhism and the Enneagram. Those of you who know about the Enneagram, did I just say Buddhism and the Enneagram? Did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> and the woman who's written the book has done a brilliant job on the Enneagram. If you don't know the Enneagram, there's a book. Oh God, here's a book recommendation. There's probably a book you could get on. Um, there's a book by Waggle called The Enneagram Made Easy that you can get download to your ebook printer or whatever it is today and read it. Type yourself. Don't let somebody else type you. And then you begin to get that you're different from other people. And um, every personality type it can function at a lower level. They call that sin in church. In, in psychological, in Enneagram language, they call it passion. In psychological language, they call it addiction. It doesn't matter what you call it. It's all there. We all got it. It's some, when we function really low, and then we can function at higher levels. But um, you're born the personality that anybody who's children know. Children come out of the womb differently. All right, you come in this world with a personality and that ain't going to change. So once I begin to see that I'm a seven and that you're a six <laughs> and that you're a four, then I don't have to make judgments about that. I can if I'm being a smart ass. And I do. I mean, you know, Sherry will say something and I said, do you really mean that or are you just being a four? <laughs> Both. <laughs> Both. So when I come to accept my sevenness and that this is me and this is my brokenness, then I can begin to accept yours without having to make you wrong or bad. We're just different, but we're the same. Get that? We have these different personalities, but we are the same in that we have these different personalities. In cosmology, that's the concept of unity and diversity, right? We become whole, the, 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 the earth is whole, the universe is whole, the cosmos is whole by its difference. Yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, I, and, and my point is that when I can accept this about me, I can accept that mm -hmm. about you. Mm -hmm. As I said, I think this is the solution to our problems. 
When we really see the other, we see something that is both familiar and not. We see something that is acceptable and not. Of course, what gets our attention is what we don't know, what we find unacceptable, and this stirs up fear, and every day that's in the news, frightened people do frightened things about people that they're frightened of. And the most common way people deal with the fear of the other is to find some way to diminish them. So the other becomes part of a group labeled them, and this group is somehow a threat to us and it becomes easy to dehumanize them because we don't belong to their group. So I want, to, I want you to hear what I'm going to say now without judgment. You have this chance when you leave here today. Just notice your reaction. We feed uh, hundreds of people every day over here at Abraham Station. Every day around lunchtime, they come from, for the, the unhoused people come here for, for lunches and things. Notice your reaction when you encounter one today. That's all. Just notice it. Don't judge it. Just notice what happens when you run into somebody. And, and, and that happens when we encounter people of other races, people of other sexual orientations, people of different educational levels people who dress differently than we do. Oh, it's all sorts of things. Just notice, that's all. Now you can flip that too. When somebody's just like you, oh, we're in the end group. You're gonna root for Kansas City next Sunday. <laughs> we're on the same team. And if you're not, what are you thinking? You don't like Patrick Mahomes? We, we, uh, we have this axiom in our culture, love is blind. And this is what happens when we fall in love with somebody. We just see these great parts of them. Yeah. Now the point is that we can see the other and we can make them into a monster or we can make them into a god. Or we can see them as somebody created just exactly like us in the image of God. And then we can look at each other and say, wow, how'd you get in that one? What's it like living in that? What's that been like for you? Being gay or black or female. What's that been like? Our openness to the other or the lack thereof can show up in a multitude of ways. And the 1619 Project and, and um, Critical Race Theory, just, just some examples. Okay. So there's so many resources, as we know, for how to deepen self-awareness. The Enneagram is one of them, right? We're not going to spend the rest of this time giving you a list of ways to go deep in self-awareness. A daily spiritual practice is another. But I want to jump straight to what I think is the goal of self-awareness. So bypass the process. <laughs> and we can say that self-awareness is to be in tension with self-acceptance and self-improvement. Yes, you are fine just the way we are. And there is room for growth. I may have a different idea when I'm further along in my own journey, but for now, that, that sticks. That, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Self-acceptance, you're okay right here, right now. Self-improvement, 
be open to what Walt Whitman wrote, which is, I'm large. I contain multitudes. Each one of us contains multitudes. And with this eye towards self-improvement, we remain open to the discovery of the multitudes. You all right? OK. <laughs> Deepening self-awareness with this mind is to practice. I have made a checklist for you, so get out your pens and papers. Um, all of which have been mentioned in this class at some point or another, but I'm going to give it to you in this form. So first of all, when we're deepening self-awareness, which then leads to other awareness, that the transcendent other is also just as beautiful, is a stance of curiosity. And curiosity is um, not knowing, not being sure, acknowledging that we don't have all the answers that we don't know everything about everyone, no matter what our assumptions say. And in the face of another, curiosity allows us to be in a state of wonder rather than in judgment or assumption. The second is uncertainty. When we are curious, we become uncertain. We can recognize that we don't know. We, it creates in us a willingness to remain open to the process of mystery unfolding. In uncertainty, we don't need to necessarily know the outcome, but we can be committed to the process. That's a very Buddhist kind of mindset. Not attachment to the outcome, but commitment to the process. It's to be okay with not having it all figured out. And to, this, is, this is really hard for the Western mind. In, in Western culture, we are so tied to knowing, so tied to being right. And I, I believe this is particular to the United States, and it may be a, a function of our youth as a country, but having it figured out is very important in this culture. So uncertainty is the opposite of that. We are figuring it out as we go. The third on our checklist is curiosity begets uncertainty, starts to ask us to take personal responsibility. None of us is personally responsible for creating the world as it is right now, but all of us are responsible for the way that we live in it. The way that we take in the messages, the way that we act them out, the way that we behave toward one another. Do we question the rules that we've inherited about whether or not you have to wear pantyhose on Sundays, or do we just do it? That's just a funny example. Bernice, I love your pantyhose. Um, in the case of social justice issues, we might deny the impact of our not knowing. Well, I'm not racist. I don't have a racist bone in my body. Yes, I do. I was born in a racist system, right? So it's, it's the personal responsibility bit is saying, I'm willing to examine that. I'm willing to examine how the culture I grew up in has shaped my behaviors, and I'm going to start to take responsibility for that. You know, we hear a lot of like, well, I didn't mean it that way. I just, I just, you're just being extra sensitive. We try to defend it when we get maybe called to task for something, whether you've said something offensive to your loved one or offensive to a, another person that you work with. And if we're practicing curiosity and uncertainty and personal responsibility, we might instead say something like, I didn't realize how my words sounded. I'm open to hearing how you experienced them. And then we kind of, you say this a lot, we go limp. We just relax the field a little bit, a willingness to just hear or be in the presence of someone else's pain or someone else's experience. Later, I think we take that feedback into our spiritual practice and we work with it. Not everything that everyone says about you is true. So part of it is we can't give everyone power over us. 
but we have to work with that space in between. What is true about their experience? What is true about my experience? Somewhere in between is the truth, right? The truth. <laughs> the next one is being aware of feelings and sensations. When we take personal responsibility, we begin to be able to better manage our own feelings. Instead of saying, you made me feel, we can more easily say, I feel. I feel overwhelmed by this process. I feel really excited about this process. We may all have a different experience, but we begin to take responsibility for our own feelings as opposed to telling other people they caused them in us. So even in a difficult moment, uh, Resma Minikam, who's a, an incredible writer and somatic psychotherapist, talks about the tendency for especially white Americans to tense up when any dialogue about race or racism or social injustice happens. And he invites us to go, just notice. Just notice that you just got tense. And be able to name, I just felt my whole body tense. I wonder what that's about. And so it's leaning into the, the spaces that tighten in us so that we can become curious about them. You see how each one kind of includes the other, right? Pers uh, being aware of feelings includes personal responsibility, includes uncertainty, includes curiosity. Each of these build. The, the next one is change. The nature of the universe is change. By the time you leave this class, something about you will have changed. You're slightly hungrier than you were when you walked in. You're slightly more tired than you were when you walked in. You're having you know, an experience of awe or wonder or thinking about something that one of us said. So even if change terrifies us, which I'm sure that some of us in here are terrified of change and try to order our universe so that we don't have to deal with it, we're already in sync with this, na this na nature of change. Our bodies are already in sync with it. So in accepting that change is a permanent part of our experience, we can be more aware that something in us is changing all the time. And part of our deepening awareness is to become conscious of that change, how it scares us and how it grows us. Feeling helpless or overwhelmed by how to be in the world as it is, can be helpful to do a kind of inventory. How am I different today than I was two years ago when all of this stuff started really coming to my awareness? How, am I, how have my thoughts, words, or actions changed? That's where it starts. It's just taking some inventory about how we have changed already. And then finally, it's participation and accountability. When curiosity makes us more uncertain, and we start to take personal responsibility, and we change in big and small ways, then we can start to participate in more meaningful ways. We start to participate in the activities of dismantling injustice, not because we feel sorry for someone else, but because we realize it affects us too. And the longer we're willing to uphold it, the longer the system goes on. I don't necessarily mean participation as charitable acts, as I said before, but it's not under the guise of helping them it's under the guise of noticing that we are interconnected. Our liberation is bound up with each other. And this month, or last month, we celebrated Dr. Martin Luther King, and he said it this way, whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. Once we get here to this final piece in the checklist, you're not done. We begin again and again 
and again. So there's a progression, aware, awareness of being here, openness to wonder, openness to the other. <clears throat> there was this guru who was meditating in a cave in the Himalayas where he meditated. He was very famous, but hard to get to. And one day as he was meditating, he opened his eyes and in front of him sat the abbot of a very well-known monastery in France. This guy had gone all the way for the Himalayas to sit in the presence of this guru. And when the guru opened his eyes, he looked at the abbot and said, what is it? And he said, I came here because I'm in dire, dire need. Said, What's the need? And he said, our, our monastery is dying. It's falling on a hard time. We used to be vibrant and vital, and people flocked from all over to attend the little services that we held. We had monks, and we had young women who were coming to, to be nurses and educators and trainers, and now we're just dying. Nothing's happening. And the guru said, yes, I know. I've been informed by the higher powers that your monastery is the place where the Messiah is. But he's in disguise and none of you know it. And that's why your monastery is dying. And then the guru went back into his trance and uh, the abbot journeyed all the way back to France and, and assembled the monks that were there and he said the one of us is the Messiah but the Messiah is in disguise maybe even to himself there's an old line that says that one in three people in America suffers from mental illness so if you look and the people on either side of you seem to be doing pretty good <laughs> so the monks in the monastery said well who in the world could it be it certainly couldn't be Brother Sacristan I mean, he's an idiot, but he's in disguise, maybe to himself. Not the cook. Oh, anyone who cooks like that can't be the Messiah. But then he's in, and they slowly begin to think, well, maybe it could be true. And so they begin to treat each other as if one of them could be the Messiah. And monastery began to flourish. New aspirants came. Crowds from around the town came at the evening prayer every day, four o'clock. They heard the bells ring. And everything began to prosper. They even made a CD called Chin. <laughs> I think that's a funny line, but obviously other people didn't. They don't know about Chin. Of what good is it to have eyes if we don't see what the heart wants us to see? No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens from this, you carry precious cargo, so watch yourself and see you here next week. <laughs>